So we continue today with our series, Jesus Encounters. And as we get into our teaching today, I just wanted to just kind of remind you of the kind of the purpose of this series was twofold. Um, first of all, I felt that this series would be uh, hopefully good to speak right to people that are in these, you know, different places that we see uh, represented by the people that encountered Jesus. So we saw the, uh, the encounter with a religious person and um, how even though Nicodemus was, you know, this uh, pillar in the, the Jewish community as a religious leader, how Jesus said that wasn't enough. He needed to be born again. Then we saw the, uh, the woman at the well and, you know, representing those who thirst. And uh, we saw the, the lame man and uh, the, the woman that was taken in adultery. So all of these different um, people that Jesus encountered, of course, my first objective was to um, apply that to people who might be listening. Either they're here listening or maybe they're listening through uh, radio or internet or whatever. Uh, but the second purpose in doing this series was to, was to give us um, just a, a fresh picture of how Jesus deals with people and uh, hopefully to encourage us, but also to, to help us as his uh, ambassador, so to speak, uh, to represent him well to the people that we come into contact with. So we've been looking at, you know, the, these different people, as I said, with, with those two primary things in mind. So today we come to this story, um, looking at uh, Pontius Pilate and uh, the conversation that he and Jesus have there. And I've entitled the message today, Jesus and the Cynic. And um, I think that this is uh, very uh, applicable in our day and age. There are many cynical people in the world around us today. And so Jesus, he wants to reach the cynic as well. He wants to appeal to the cynic. Now, a cynic is a person who has been jaded by experience and their experience has, has caused them to be uh, very suspect of any uh, claim of, of virtue or goodness or even truth. A cynic is the, the kind of person who, uh, at the suggestion that you might have um, you know, perhaps true love, or there might be absolute truth. A cynic is a person that just sort of, you know, they roll their eyes, they, they sort of shake their head, they snicker that, that anyone would actually think that that is even a possibility. Uh, the difference between a skeptic and a cynic is that the skeptical person, it, usually their, their, uh, their problems are, are intellectually based. So if it's a matter of needing information. It's a matter of needing uh, to get the facts. So sometimes a, a skeptic, uh, once, they, once they become aware of the facts, they can move away from their skepticism. It's, it's more of a, a head issue. The, but the cynic is different because the cynic, 
is a person who's, it's more of a heart issue. It's more of something, uh, they, they have seen something that has jaded them. And as a result of that, uh, they become, in a sense, uh, they've become biased. And, and therefore, they, they've lost their objectivity. So Pilate was a cynic. You see, Pilate knew firsthand the intrigues and the corruption of Roman and Jewish politics. And he had also seen up close and personal the, the underbelly, if you will, of Judaism. And now remember the, the Jewish claim, and it's a legitimate claim, uh, was that Judaism was the religion of the one true God, Yahweh. But the priest and the leaders of the nation were so thoroughly corrupted that Pilate, having firsthand experience with that, would, would really just completely dismiss or scoff at, or he would roll his eyes at the suggestion that, that what he saw there could have uh, been true. And so for Pilate, the idea of absolute moral and spiritual truth uh, was in the end a joke. And, and there are people all around us like that today. There are people today who uh, have been jaded through experiences with religion, and therefore they are extremely cynical when it uh, comes to any uh, truth claim, especially a truth claim that's connected to faith. Perhaps you know someone like that. Here's the question. How do we respond to the cynic? Do we just leave them alone? Just say, well, you know, they're there, there's no way they're ever going to uh, listen to a word we say. There, there's no uh, ground of appeal to them. What do we do with the person who is a cynic? Well, I believe that we give them the truth, but not just the truth philosophically. We give them the truth incarnationally. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, giving them the truth philosophically, I think that we should challenge people who say that there is no such thing as truth or absolute truth. I think we should challenge uh, the relativism in the culture. I, I think we should push back against that with good philosophical arguments, and there certainly are plenty of good philosophical arguments for that. Now, one of the main philosophical debates in the culture today uh, and, and it's a debate that's been around a long time, is whether truth is relative, which means whatever each individual or the culture collectively believes to be true is the truth, or is truth objective and absolute, which means that the truth is outside of us, it is fixed, and it is unalterable regardless of what we think or feel. Now, we're actually at a point in Western civilization where there's a new idea now that's being floated of post-truth. And this is, the, this is the extreme end of relativism. Post-truth is the idea that truth is whatever you feel it to be, regardless of the facts. So it used to be that, uh, you know, somebody might think the truth was one thing, but then the facts would push back against that and and whether they agreed or not, they kind of had to concede that 
okay, well, the, these are the facts. But, but now, post-truth, and it's not just, um, you know, it's not just a, a thing that, you know, a few crazy people are thinking here and there. It's, it's a thing that a, a lot of people are thinking. The Oxford Dictionary actually, uh, in this past year, they, they placed the word post-truth in the dictionary and gave a definition, which is uh, truth that is not based on fact, but based on what a person felt was true, regardless of the facts. So that, that's pretty crazy in and of itself. But that's the place that we have arrived at in our culture. So I do think that there's a legitimate place to uh, push back against that. I think we should push back against that. But here's the problem. Uh, the problem is, even when you push back against it, a lot of times you just end up in a polarized situation because even though people will concede that it doesn't really make sense practically, they still will tenaciously hold on to it. The most ardent moral relativist on any university campus, the person who says, you know, whatever is right in your own eyes, nobody can tell you what's right or wrong, nobody can judge you, you, you can, whatever, you know, whatever you believe to be true is true. The person who holds most uh, strongly to that will simultaneously tell you in no uncertain terms that racism, sexism, homophobia, uh, that all of this is wrong for everyone. But the problem is, well, if relativism is true and you decide what's right or wrong, then how do you say that the person who holds to these particular ideas is wrong? So even the, those who hold tenaciously to a, a, a moral relativism, they, they recognize the problem philosophically and practically, but it doesn't matter. They still hold to it anyway. So since that's the case, like I said, I think it's good to push back against it, but you might end up just in, you know, this sort of um, endless uh, pushing back and forth and never, never gain any ground. The thing that we need to remember, especially us, we need to remember that truth is not just propositional Truth is not just in that abstract philosophical sense. We need to remember that truth is incarnational. And the incarnational truth is no one other than Jesus Christ himself. We, we can't forget that. So in our dealings with this, the cynical person, we need to always bring uh, Jesus into the equation. Incarnational truth brings a living person into the equation. And we can afford to, to not do that. A friend of mine named Andy Bannister who wrote a book called um, The Atheist Who Didn't Exist. Great book, by the way, if you wanna read a fun uh, book on uh, the subject of atheism. Uh, Andy said this uh, recently in a, in a tweet that I read. He said, the central claim of the Bible is that truth is a person to be known, not a set of facts to be memorized. See, that's something that we need to remember. 
at the end of the day, ultimate final truth is a person to be known. So you see, if I'm in a, in a conversation or if I'm in a debate or if I'm trying to convince somebody who holds to this uh, idea of, of relativism, uh, if I'm trying to convince them that there is absolute truth, like I said, I might go back and forth with one argument after another, but that can largely just be a waste of time. There has to be a moment where we bring Jesus into that conversation. Now, I had firsthand experience with this many years ago. I was traveling from, uh, from London to Oxford. I was on a, a coach traveling. I was sitting next to a guy and we struck up a conversation as we were heading to Oxford and I started to talk with him and, and somehow I, I think I think I initiated the conversation in as much as I was, you know, hoping to share the gospel with him. But we ended up just getting onto the topic of, of whether there was absolute truth or not. And he was a, a very uh, sharp guy. He was well-educated. It was obvious from his arguments and from just his ability to articulate and so forth. And, and we sat there for about 40 minutes and just went back and forth, just sort of um, sparring with one another on a kind of a philosophical level about whether there was absolute truth. And, and I got to a point where I was just so frustrated internally. I was just thinking to myself, you know, we, we, I am getting nowhere with this guy. You know, every, everything I come up with, he's got some sort of a response to it. And uh, at, a, at a certain moment, I remember just sort of, you know, there's a pause in the conversation debate. And I just sort of closed my eyes and just said, Lord, just show me, help me, help me know where to go here. And uh, the Lord just said, well, why don't you bring me into this uh, conversation? <laughs> I thought, oh, that's a good idea. Didn't think of that. And so anyway, I said to him, um, I said, well, look, you know, you, you say that there's no such thing as truth and so forth. I said, but listen, uh, Jesus Christ claimed to be the truth. And I'm actually going to take the, the word of Jesus as authority over your word. Now, here's the amazing thing that happened. Once I brought Jesus into the conversation, everything immediately changed. And what I ended up finding out after the conversation continued is that this guy was a Christian as a, as a young person, and he had lost his faith. And he had, I, I just think by the things, you know, that he insinuated that he had gone off into a lifestyle that he knew was not acceptable to God, and he just had embraced that. But as, as we began to just talk about the claims of Jesus, in the end, he began to really soften up. And there was a point in the conversation where he actually got choked up when he started to tell me about his previous experiences uh, as, a, as a young man, uh, you know, and as a Christian at the time. And, and so to make a long story short, by the end of our journey to Oxford, and as we parted from one another, he said to me, he said, you know, I really have to think about everything you said. And I, I want to go back and I want to just revisit um, the Bible and what, you know, Jesus had to say. And so for me, that experience uh, illustrates the, the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Because like I said, there are lots of cynical people 
today, and they're especially cynical toward religion. And oftentimes they're cynical toward the church. And you mention the church or you mention Christians, and maybe they've, they've seen hypocrisy up close and personal like Pilate did. Maybe they've even been burned by the church or they had a, a, a family member who had a bad experience. So they're, they're, they're jaded and they're cynical. Um, how do you even begin with a person like that? Well, you've got to just go straight to Jesus. Because you know, the truth of the matter is, there are lots of people in the culture who are turned off by the church and by organized religion, as they sometimes refer to it, but they're, they're interested in Jesus. They're intrigued by Jesus. He, to them, is uh, a mystery. And, and we have to remember that we are preaching Jesus Christ. We're not preaching our, our church or our denomination or, or even Christianity in the, like a creedal sense. Of course, we believe in everything the creeds say, but, but we don't want to present the faith just merely as these, um, like Andy said, as, as these facts to be memorized, we have to present the faith as a living person. And that's what happened in the story here that we read about. Pilate is the cynic. And there, as Jesus is brought before Pilate, and Pilate begins to question him, Jesus just takes him right to the, the heart of the issue, and that is the issue of truth. Look at verses 37 and 38 again. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king? Well, let me back up. Let me go to verse 33. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, are you speaking for yourself about this or did others tell you this concerning me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation. And the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I would not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Jesus answered, you rightly say that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So Jesus just takes him right to the, the central issue, the truth. Now, Jesus, when I was saying earlier about incarnational truth, Jesus is. He is, incarnational means in the flesh. Jesus is the embodiment of the truth. And we know that from many of the statements of scripture, the statements of Jesus himself. Remember in John 14, 6, the famous passage, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus claims there to be the truth. But when he claims to be the truth, what, what does that entail? What is that all about? Well, there are a number of things, and I want to just briefly walk us through these things. He is, number one, the truth about God. There's a great mystery surrounding God, right? There's all kinds of theories and ideas and uh, confusion. You know, who is God? Uh, is there a God? If there is a God, what is he like? Well, Jesus, he's the truth about God because he is, as, as uh, 
the writer of Hebrews tells us in the first chapter, Jesus is the brightness of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his person. He is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus himself would say in that same context there in John chapter 14, he would say to Philip, who said, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said, have I been with you so long, Philip, and you have not recognized me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. So you see, it's through Jesus that we find out the truth about God. We, we see God in Jesus. We see who the Father is in Jesus. And through Jesus, we see that God is full of mercy and he's full of grace toward sinful men and women. As A.W. Tozer put it, he said, the penitent will find him merciful. The self-condemned will find him generous and kind. To the frightened, he is friendly. To the poor in spirit, he is forgiving. To the ignorant, considerate. To the weak, gentle. To the stranger, hospitable. And so Jesus is the truth about God, but he's also the truth about mankind. You see, Jesus didn't only come to show us what God is like, but he came to also live out what God intended for us as human beings. So Jesus is the, the perfect representation of God, but he's also the perfect rep representation of mankind. And what do we see with Jesus? We see that man was created to live in a loving, personal, father-child relationship with God. That's what, that's what Jesus shows us. Remember at that point where Jesus, it says it, and, and he cried out, Abba, Father. And that's that, that intimate um, expression that, that a child would um, speak uh, toward, toward the, their father. So Jesus comes to show us that this is what man was intended to be, uh, living in a relationship with God, having this, this uh, parental, this parent-child relationship. You know, even thinking of just those terms, uh, you know, father-child, uh, parent-child, of course, the mother uh, reflects some of the, the attributes and the nature of God. You know, when you have a father and a mother, you've got the, the combined sort of attributes of God. You've got, generally speaking, you know, the strength and, and the firmness uh, of God seen in the father. You've got the tenderness and the compassion and the love. Uh, seen in the mother, and, and those things are, are blended together in God. But I was thinking just about the, just the whole picture of the father-child relationship, and, you know, sometimes that might sound a little bit childish. Well, you know, father-child, I mean, come on, I'm a, grown, I'm a grown man now. But, you know, isn't it, isn't it true that with our children and even with our parents, we, we never really outgrow that relationship? It, it remains the same. I just spent the week with my dad uh, who came to visit. And, you know, there are just these moments where it was, you know, to me, it was just so funny in a good way how he, he still ref refers to me with these affectionate, endearing terms like he did when I was a little boy. You know, I'm 60 years old and he's calling me honey, you know. 
Now, come here, hon. You know, and I was like, hey, it's okay. It's my dad. And it's, you know, it's no different with me. And I, I think of my, you know, my two sons, uh, one's 34, one's 26. And, uh, you know, I, I just love to every now and again, just give them a big old smack on the cheek, you know, with, with my lips, just, uh, you know, just to just remind them, you know, I'm your dad. And I was, you know, doing this kissing you when you were a little, little baby. So, you know, we don't, we don't outgrow that stuff. And that's the reality that Jesus brought to us with God. Jesus came to show us that man is intended to live in this, this beautiful relationship with the father where the father loves us and the father provides for us and the father protects us and the father has a plan for us and all of those beautiful things. So he is the truth about mankind. Jesus is also the truth about life. He's the truth about life. The big question is, well, what is, what is life about anyway? Well, the scripture tells us that in Christ was life. Life is in him. Life, life exists because of him. And the life was the light of men. Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. You see, Jesus taught us that life is a gift from God. It's not accidental, random, purposeless, or meaningless. Life means something. And it means knowing God. That's the meaning of life. People are asking today, well, you know, what, what is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is to know God and to cultivate that, that relationship with him where we, we come to know him in ever-increasing uh, depth as, as time goes on. And then all throughout eternity, as we eventually end up there with him, it's just this endless growth in our understanding of the glory and the greatness of God. C.H. Spurgeon, when he was a very young man, I think he was about 21 at the time, uh, he wrote this in regard to knowing God. He said, it has been said by someone, the proper study of mankind is man. I will not dispute the idea, but I believe that it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of the child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. But while the subject humbles the mind, it also expands it. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and of him crucified and of the knowledge of the Godhead in the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the soul of man as the devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. We were created to know God and to know him, as I said, in ever deeper ways 
uh, through the passing of time. And so the meaning of life is wrapped up in knowing God. And then the purpose of life is wrapped up in serving God. And the more I know God and I understand who he is and his amazing love for me and his beautiful plan, then that just inspires me to to want to serve him. And it's in serving him that I find true purpose in life. And so we have uh, the truth about um, what life is all about. We also have the, in Christ the truth about love. That love is not what it's so often portrayed to be, uh, just mere sentimentalism, but love is, is sacrificial. For God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his one and only son. And then that one and only son would say to his disciples, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's the sacrificial love. And through Christ, we understand what love really is. And through Christ, we also understand the truth about time and eternity. Time and eternity. What do we, what do we learn from Christ about that? Well, we learn this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. All things begin and end in him. So these are the things, when Jesus said, I am the truth, and we could continue to probably broaden this out and include other things, but suffice it to say, when Jesus said, I am the truth, these are the things that he's talking about. Truth has been defined as that which corresponds to reality. That's a definition that some people give of truth, and I think it's a good one. That which corresponds to reality. Jesus Christ is the ultimate reality. He is the ultimate reality. When everything else is said and done, he's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. It all started with him. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. Uh, all things were made through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. That's John chapter one. So everything started with him and everything will conclude with him. So he is the ultimate reality. Everything he claimed, taught, did, and promised to do is true. Everything that he did it's all true. Everything that he taught, everything that he said, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. It's certain. It's fixed. It's unalterable. It cannot be uh, anything other than uh, what reality is and will be. Everything that he promised as well, everything he promised to do is true. And, you know, for those Bible students here, you know, as you, as you study the scriptures and as you look at the, the, the promises, as you look at the prophets, as you look at the prophecies, you know, it's all just, it's all unfolding just exactly the way God said it would unfold. And so the scripture in the book of Revelation, refers to Jesus as the amen, 
And the word amen means true. He is true. He is true. Now there, as, as Jesus stands before Pilate, let me give you just a, a quick um, overview of Pilate. We talked a little bit about him, but Pilate was, uh, he was the Roman governor over the, the region there in Judea for about, for approximately 10 years. He was, um, he was a man with a, with a, a military background as well as administrative abilities and so forth. Uh, he was very um, hostile toward the Jews, particularly the, the leadership of the nation. And on many occasions, he offended them and uh, att- attacked them. Um, he, he actually did things to them that caused him to be reprimanded by Caesar. And his position was even threatened uh, because of his inability to, to get along with uh, the Jewish leadership. So he, he just essentially hated these guys. And he, he would demonstrate that animosity uh, throughout that period of time that he was the governor. But we also see when we look at Pilate from the Gospels, we also see that he, he had at least in him some sense of, of right and wrong and justice because he knew that Jesus was a political prisoner. Pilate knew that it was because of envy on the part of the Jewish leaders that that Jesus was turned over to him. He knew all of that. And, And as we read in the different accounts, we see that Pilate even sought to release Jesus. Now, in the end, Pilate, you have to say that he was a coward because he went against his own convictions and he condemned Jesus even though he knew Jesus was innocent. But he was more concerned with his position than he was with, um, with you know, what was actually just. And, and maybe you remember, if you can think back in reading those gospel accounts there uh, at the end, there's a point where the, the religious leaders say to him, to Pilate, they say, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. And you see, they were using uh, political pressure against Pilate at that point. Because remember, as I said, he'd already had uh, conflict with them that led to a reprimand from Caesar. So basically, they're threatening him that if you don't do what we want you to do, we're going to go back and tell Caesar that you supported this guy who says he's a king. And anybody who claims to be a king is putting themselves up in opposition to Caesar. And so because of that kind of pressure... Uh, Pilate uh, capitulated. But Pilate, as I already said, because of his experience with these, these religious leaders who were n- nothing but pure politicians, he was completely cynical. And as Jesus says to him, as we read there in verses 37, or in verse 37, as Jesus says, Uh, yes, you're right. I am a king. And for this cause I was born. And for this purpose, I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Pilate then cynically responds with this, what is truth? And have you ever noticed that Jesus didn't answer him? Why didn't Jesus answer him? Well, actually, I think Jesus did answer him. He just didn't answer him verbally. Because as Jesus stood there silently before Pilate, 
as Pilate asked the question, what is truth? I think Jesus would simply just there, you know, in his own presentation of himself, I think he would be saying to Pilate silently, you're looking at the truth. That's obviously what he had already claimed. Everyone who is of the truth, hears my voice. And so for Pilate, we don't know what happened to Pilate after this account here. We know that he uh, publicly tried to distance himself from this. He washed his hands. He said, I'm innocent of the, the blood of this man. And um, we don't know what happened to him beyond that. There are all kinds of legends and myths. You know, some say that he actually became a, a believer and have all of these stories, which there, there's no actual historical evidence for that. Uh, some people say that he was um, deposed and, and sent, uh, he lost his governorship. He did lose that at some point. Uh, we don't know. But Pilate the Cynic, who probably would not have been interested in any kind of uh, philosophical attempt to prove to him that there was truth, the truth is incarnated before him. And so, as I said from the beginning, this is what we want to keep at the forefront of our understanding as we are uh, addressing a cynical culture. Let's always bring Jesus in. Because, you know, Jesus is hard to argue with. You know, you can, you can argue so many things about, you know, whether there's truth or not truth, or, you know, you can argue about um, origins and, you know, you know whether the, everything just happened randomly and accidentally through evolutionary natural processes or whether there's a God who's a creator. But, you know, Jesus kind of throws a wrench into everything because you have to explain Jesus. How do you explain this person in history who not only claims to be God, but has all the credentials? You know, the Gospels are historical records, and nobody to this day has ever, in a, attempts over hundreds of years, nobody has ever disproved one statement in the Gospels. No one. So it's an accurate historical record. Jesus claims to be God, and he's got the credentials. He does all the things that you would think that God does. He has power over nature. He calms the sea. He speaks to the wind, and it stops, and the waves are calm. He takes loaves and fishes and he multiplies them to feed a multitude of people. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He raises the dead. These are the things that, if there's a God, these are the things, if he came to the, to the earth, these are the things you expect him to do. Well, Jesus did it all. And so that's what we bring to the debate on whether there is truth. We just, we interject Jesus into that debate and then people have to grapple with him. You know, I find this is just for me, but I find these days when it comes to arguing politics or when it comes to arguing uh, philosophies and theories, I, I just, I, I am not inclined to do that these days. I, I just, I want to get right to the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is Jesus Christ. Because he said, I am the truth. 
So you deal with that. You, you handle that. You wrestle with that because that's his claim. And all of the evidence points in that direction. And so as the servants of Christ, let's remember that all this, although the cynics might not at all respond to a, a, an eloquent argument on uh, the reason why there is absolute truth, although the cynics might not want to hear about, you know, even religion or, you know, Christianity as this, you know, thing in history, Jesus can step in. And the wonderful reality is that we're not just talking about a person who lived 2,000 years ago. We're talking about a person who lives today. So when you bring Jesus into the conversation, you really bring Jesus into the conversation. He comes in himself. That's the great thing. That has just brought me so much peace over the years. You know, that, uh, you know, I can only do so much in a, in a conversation or a debate or an argument or whatever. I can, I can only do so much. But I, I, I'm not responsible in the end. Ultimately, that's the, that's the job of Christ. I can trust him to take over. And as, going back to that story, I'll close with this. Going back to the story of the man there, you know, traveling together with me. Um, it was just bringing Jesus into the equation that everything changed. It wasn't only his mind that changed, his heart changed. And I have to believe that his heart changed because God touched him. And that's what God does and will do. So Lord, we thank you that you are the living Christ and Lord, that you are the truth and that you ultimate reality is centered in you. And Lord, how we who have come to embrace that, how we um, have been so blessed and so fulfilled through that reality. And Lord, we, we think of the cynics that are out there. We, we probably know some. And so, Lord, we pray that you, uh, even through us, Lord, that we might interject you into the conversation. Help us to do that. Lord, I pray for anyone today that maybe someone's here with us today that's come in cynical and just pretty convinced that there's no way that any any uh, religion has anything for them. Uh, may they know today, Lord, that you are the living Savior who is ultimate reality. So do that work and help us as your servants to continue to grow in our knowledge of you that we might more effectively represent you to the world around us, we pray. Amen.